Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the brand new Norwegian Bliss, just launched by NCL, sailing out of Miami. Uh, My next guest actually admits to knowing me for about 12 years. We go back to a, a special that we put together when I was at NBC for CNBC, which still ranks as probably the highest rated special they've ever done. It was really the week of the life of one cruise ship, which told the life and the business of the cruise ship industry. It was called Cruise Inc. It's still running, by the way, on CNBC, and I haven't been at NBC since 2009. That ought to tell you something. And his name, of course, he's the president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Lines. Andy Stewart, how are you, sir? I'm great, Peter. How are you doing? Hard to believe that was 10 years ago. I know. It seems like just yesterday, and I, I see the show on quite frequently, and I often run into people who just love the show. I mean, it was a great story of the cruise industry. Well, what it really talked about was what we really do all the time on my radio show and also television show. We talk about the process. You know, if you can't understand the process, how do you value the product? Yeah, you brought so, it to life, though, in a very interesting way. So it was, a, it was a great show. I mean, you know, you ask kids where food comes from, they tell you the store, not good enough. You really want to be able to show how things got on board and how they got delivered and how they got served. 
and the con not just the consumption, but just the logistics of it all. The sheer logistics are very complex because it's a confined space. So, so bringing everything on and finding places to put it and dealing with all the aspects of the logistics is pretty complicated on a ship. So you did a great job at sort of delving into that. And that was on a smaller ship. That was the Norwegian Pearl. That's right. This is quite large. This is quite large comparatively. Comparatively, this is, I won't say it's double the size, but it's close. Yeah, it's not quite double the size, but uh, it's, it's, it is almost double the size. We have 4,000 passengers uh, on the ship versus 2,400 on Norwegian Pearl. So significant. Larger. Now, when did you first lay the keel on this? The keel was laid last year, in uh, early last year. But that uh, was after you started cutting metal. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we cut this. We cut the steel first, uh, and then we lay the keel, uh, and then the next stage is the float out. So it's uh, it's a process. The shipyards have a lot of tradition. So each uh, each stage. Did is you a put a coin? Did you put a coin in? Absolutely. Explain the coin. You no, know, the coin is is a is a old seafaring tradition. When we're lowering the keel, we put a we put a coin under the keel for good luck, and that's and uh, it's well it in. Uh, that's right. And stays with the ship for the life of the ship. Wow. So if the ship ever has a problem and it ends up somewhere where it's not supposed to be, it's going to be that, tough to find the coin. That doesn't happen, Peter. Our I know, ships I never know. end up where they're not supposed to be. I know. Well, let's not go there. <laughs> but, but the bottom line is there's still a lot of tradition left at the shipyards. There's a lot of tradition at the shipyards. Any um, superstitions? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of superstitions. Like you should uh, never float out a ship on a Thursday? Or oh, I'm sure. I, I'm absolutely sure there are. I, I don't have any of those. I'm not a <laughs> superstitious person because that always goes the wrong so no no superstitions here but this is a breakaway class ship yes it's a breakaway plus class ship we had uh, we had two that were breakaway class and then we made them slightly bigger the next uh, the next round of of the breakaway plus class isn't it at this point in the cruise industry not even just a tradition it's almost mandatory that they always next ships are bigger you know we we have done that up to now now each ship has got a little has got a little larger um, but the next class of ship we're building the Leonardo class actually we, we're going slightly smaller uh, they'll carry three thousand three 300 passengers and, and so that'll have an inferiority class <laughs> no, no absolutely not <laughs> it gives us a little more flexibility so as you look at destinations around the world there are destinations that are perfect for these 4,000 passenger ships destinations perfect for the 3,300 which is the next class and some perfect for the uh, earlier generation we built that were 2,400 sure. you know it's interesting you take a look at some what, 1,100 different ports of call that cruise lines call on today which is hugely increased from what it was 10 years ago and dramatically beyond belief increased from where it was 20 years ago. I mean, you're talking about cruise ship ports like Bangladesh and, and Antarctica and, and, and places that were previously inaccessible. And yet the most popular destinations, Alaska, Mexican Riviera, right, the, the Caribbean, you've got, it, you have a problem now with where you place all the ships because there are ports that have capacity. You know, the industry's been growing. It's a value proposition consumers love. So we're building ships and we have to have places to take the ships. So uh, this morning I, had, I got to jump off the ship and go see our island in the Bahamas, which we're investing a lot of money in, in developing that destination. It's one of the most highly rated ports we have anywhere in the world. We developed a new destination in Belize called yeah, I noticed Key. this morning that the ship was there for like a little bit and then just left. Yes, yeah. That was just for you? Well, I don't want to be selfish, but we, we did want to stop by and take a look at uh, the project we have going on on the island. So we, uh, we so took a look at that. So you stopped. You did. We did. We did. <laughs> <laughs> we jumped off early and we were back on by 9.30. And tell me about because every cruise line that I know of that operates in the Caribbean at this point, whether it's you or Royal Caribbean or even MSC, they've got their own island. Yeah, it's been a, become a big part of the industry. We were the first company to buy one back in the 70s. And that was named? Uh, Great Stirrup Key, yeah. uh, which is where we were this morning. And for a long time, it was Gilligan's Island. There was nothing but a beach and, and a barbecue. And, and everybody was named Ginger and Marianne? <laughs> well, it wasn't mandatory. But, yeah. um, but now what we've done is we've, uh, we've put a lot of um, 
uh, suites, air-conditioned suites. We've put a spa. We've put a restaurant for our sweet product there. We've put a lot of cabanas. We've expanded the I'm beach. assuming the spa's an open-air uh, spa? There's No, we've put an really? indoor air-conditioned spa uh, on the island. And really, it's, a, it's an incredible um, destination. We're in the process of building a zip line that will be completed shortly. Uh, we have jet skis on the backside of the island, so people can jet ski without disturbing folks on the beach. So we've really thought about how to deliver great guest experience, lots of choice, lots of activities, great food, great dining, and a relaxed day on a private island. Where can you do that? We were talking about how you're trying to think outside the box uh, in terms of your itineraries and the choices of your ports, but also how you break down the day when you're at a port. And for me, it used to drive me nuts that, you know, you'd show up at 8 o'clock in the morning. It would take not just your cruise line, any cruise line, you know, an hour and a half to get off. And and then you had to run around, and then you have to race back. And a lot of passengers were saying, you know, hey, guys, can we figure this out so that, especially at certain ports that really have a great infrastructure and a great nightlife, that we can overnight? Yeah, well, we started in Hawaii with that uh, as a concept, and we uh, placed a ship in Honolulu that really spent two days everywhere the ship went, two days in Maui, uh, to, so people could really enjoy Maui, two days on Kauai, and then we spent a day in Kona and a day in Hilo. So it was two days on the big island of Hawaii, but in two different de destinations on the island. So the ship was in port almost the entire week. Um, it's a great opportunity to experience all the diversity and differences across the different Hawaiian islands, but unpack and pack only once as the ship takes you to the islands. A fantastic way to experience Hawaii. Where else have you taken that concept? The other place we've taken the concept is uh, Havana. Uh, we recently started cruising to Havana um, out of Miami and out of Port Canaveral. And there we get in early in the morning and we stay all the way through till the early hours of the next day to give guests the opportunity to experience the nightlife in Havana. And by the way, the word that they say in Spanish is designated driver. Uh, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because people will be drinking in Havana. It's they, may, it's they may have one or two, Peter. They we may. Don't force they them probably though. will have three or four. <laughs> <laughs> And but everybody I, wants to experience the they, nightlife they want to do in that. Havana. Yeah. And, and so that's a, that's a really great example, I think, of where we've changed a typical itinerary and stay late into the night. Well, you've done something else. You've added another ship. That's right. Yeah, we now have a ship sailing out of uh, Port Canaveral. But both ships stay all day, and they stay until the early hours of the next day. But Havana's not the only port. Havana's not the only port on the itinerary. We then go to our private island, which I was talking about before, and they get to spend a, a day on a tropical beach on our beautiful private island. So it's a really nice combination on a short four-day cruise. What are the ports that you're looking at now or that you've already added that people would find the most surprising. So, for example, you take a look at a, at a ship like uh, Silver Sea. They're going to Bangladesh. You're going, really? Yeah, they are. What, you know, we know that you guys go to the Caribbean. We know you go, you go to Alaska. We know you do the Mexican Riviera. But what would be the biggest surprise port? People would say, we had no idea. You know, for Norwegian, we're, we're cruising. Uh, we are cruising all over the world, but we tend to cruise to more of the mainstream destinations. The big change for us is uh, we've now added uh, cruises to Australia, New Zealand, and across Asia, and we do an amazing position cruise that starts in Europe and works its way through the Suez yeah, Canal. I, I want to talk about that because that's the great secret in cruising. If you've got the time, you want to get on a repositioning cruise. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, oh it's, my in, God. it's incredible value. Um, and you I, really saw a ship, I saw a trip last year. I was kicking myself for not taking it because I couldn't. It was 45 days. But it, it went from Barcelona to Galveston. Yeah. I mean, it was, what a it was on Carnival. way to and, do and, that. And it worked out, to, I think, $48 a night for a cabin on that ship simply because they had to move the ship. Yeah, I, I mean, that's not a price I like, Peter, but... Um, uh, but hello. They, but, <laughs> but they are... But wait a second. If you'd seen that price as a consumer, would you have jumped on it? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Absolutely. Mr. Stewart. Okay. <laughs>
But the bottom line is that's where you get great value. Yes. Yeah, there is tremendous value. And now uh, let's talk about those those cruises. Like once a year, are you taking a ship across the Pacific? Uh, yeah, we take a we take a ship um, across the Pacific. Uh, we take a ship. Where does we it take start? a number of ships across the Atlantic. Um, we take um, ships from Europe through the Suez Canal, um, past India, across to Singapore. So we are. I mean, we're really taking positioning cruises. Although any positioning cruise you can think of, we've got um, going from from. Well, let's talk. Across the give, give me an example of the, of the, of the Pacific one. Leaves from where? Uh, we will leave from uh, Seattle um, and uh, and uh, go across to what? Hawaii? Uh, well, no. We're, we're, we're actually well, we, are, allowed, we are going right? to take a we are going to take a cruise actually from Hawaii to uh, to Seattle. Um, With a stop in Vancouver? Which, uh, Did you violate the Jones Act? Well, we're going to take our U.S. flagship, so ah, we don't, so we don't have go. to go. So we don't have to do. Would that. you agree with me that the Jones Act is pathetic? I'm not going to comment on legislation, Peter. It's uh, you know we we managed to offer incredible itineraries <laughs> around the world <laughs> under the confines of the Jones Act. So uh, can I explain and, to and my then audience? We have a U.S. flagship in Hawaii. Well, that, that that is the exception to the rule. It is the exception to the rule. But let's talk about the Jones Act for people who may not know it. It was designed back in 1939 as an attempt to protect the American Merchant Marine, and it did just, just the opposite. Everybody reflagged their vessels everywhere else and said, see ya. So if you want to go from L.A. to San Francisco on a foreign flag ship, you have to stop in Mexico on the way. It makes no sense. I mean, you, you have to stop on a foreign port between any two U.S. ports. The reality is, though, in Miami, you have the Bahamas right there. In L.A., you have Mexico right there. In um, Seattle, you have Vancouver right there. The only place, really, where it's a major issue is Hawaii, right. which is why we have a U.S. flagship in Hawaii, where, so we can operate seven days in the Hawaiian Islands without going to a foreign port. Now that we've completely deconstructed the Jones Act, um, and I know you don't want to comment on current legislation, but it does tend to restrict a lot of your options at least if you're going between two U.S. ports. You can't. Yeah, yeah, if we're going between two different uh, U.S. ports, we have to go to what's described as a distant foreign port. So that right. is a little more limiting. In the Caribbean, for example, the closest distant foreign port are, are the ABC islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. So that becomes more limiting, but it's... And it's, before you had the U.S. Ba- the U.S. flagship in Hawaii, if you wanted to go between Maui and Honolulu, you had to go out to something like Pitcairn Island or something. It was Fanning Island. Fanning Island, thank you, Fanning yeah. Fanning Island in the Republic of Kiribati. <laughs> and, uh, so that was a little more challenging, and... You you know, fuel costs ultimately prohibited us from doing that. Yeah. And, and then we had this option, an exciting possibility to develop a U.S. flag brand. So, it you know, it, it worked out. It forces us to be creative and innovative and do things we otherwise wouldn't do. But we uh, we managed to deploy our fleet pretty effectively in the U.S. and around the world uh, within the confines of that. Now, in the last time we talked about the Pacific re, uh, repositioning cruise, you've got an Atlantic one, too. Yes, that's right. This ship actually just came across the Atlantic. We sailed from Southampton to New York. And, uh, in how many days? In 10 days. Which is, which is slow. Yeah. We took our time and uh, we stopped in Nova Scotia on the way on the way over. So you had lobster, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, our guests loved it. They absolutely love it. It's a very relaxing way to uh, head back to the U.S. from Europe or vice versa at the beginning of the season. You know, I'm a big fan of repositioning cruises for another reason. You have time to think. You, you have really time do. To, you have, you time, have time, time to read a book. You have time to just. You're not racing. It's, it's, I mean, I know what your life is like. You're, yeah. You are always on the plane. You're always heading somewhere else. I'm, I'm fairly similar, although not quite as, not quite as bad as you. <laughs> uh, so these moments when we can have some downtime are, are pretty unusual and pretty rare. And I think a lot of people feel like that in life. So an opportunity to take a nice long repositioning is... Uh, and I, I can tell you this because we did it last year on, on another cruise line. But if you can take a repositioning cruise that goes through the Suez Canal, do it. Yeah, I think It that's... is. You're seeing 20th century history unfold in front of you. Because you can see where the battles were fought. You can see where the, the demarcation lines were, where the British were, the Americans, the Egyptians, the Israelis. It's amazing. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting. And there are quite a number available. So uh, I, I, I agree with you. That's a great, uh, interesting itinerary choice.
What's going on in Turkey right now? Because right now, I don't think there's a single American cruise line that's calling in that port. It's an insurance issue, isn't it? No, I mean, it's, it's really a consumer demand yeah. issue. Um, but we're, we have, uh, in, as a part of our group, we have two other brands, Regent and Oceania. And with those brands, we're starting to test our way back. You are going to come back, And yeah. start to offer some Turkish ports on our itineraries. Um, we think, you know, the consumer is ready to go back to Turkey. It's a fantastic destination. It's amazing, yeah. Very interesting. A lot of history there. And uh, there was a time when it was, you know, it was the high, they were the highest rated ports around the world and so it's a great shame we're not there today and we're starting to test our way back and for those people who are thinking about it it's also great value because nobody's been going that's right and i mean i was in san sofia about four months ago i was the only guy in, in the entire and church. did you feel safe totally yeah so we I, never you know, felt threatened i really feel it's time for the industry to start working its way back which is what we're starting with the our brands that tend to go to more exotic ports first and then once you know once we see that's working we'll be back as norwegian and that brings up another issue which i talk about all the time is the new revised protocol call the State Department advisories because there always have been State Department advisories. But that three-word three concept, State Department advisory, has such a negative connotation for people who don't even read them that they think, okay, I'm not going. So what did the State Department do? They said, oh, we're going to make it better now. We're not going to issue a State Department advisory for every country. And they do it under four categories. And the categories are scary. The one says, you know, travel with normal caution. I have no idea what that means. And the second one is travel with increased caution. At this point, you're putting plywood on your windows and staying home. And then category three, you're already digging the bunker. It says, you reconsider travel. That means ain't going. And then category four, which people think is a rule, a law, or a regulation, and it's none of the above, is do not travel. There are five states in Mexico right now that come under the category four terminology of the State Department advisory, like the state of Sinaloa. You know what's in the state of Mazatlan? I was just there. No problemo. And yet, people going, I'm not going. And so that's got to affect the people booking your Mexican itineraries who are saying, gee, I don't think I should go. I mean, I think it's a challenge. Anytime something new is introduced, people have to figure it out and understand it and assuming uh, they read it and and as you're saying people's in the people who do read it their interpretation of it will be different and so it is a challenge i think people see cruising as a tremendously safe vacation and they trust the cruise lines that we're not going to take them anywhere where you know where they could be put in in harm's way so we um we're very cautious um as an industry i would say and as a cruise line in particular and we have mazatlan on our itineraries and and, you and know, no believe problems. it's a great place to take people so it's it's difficult so i understand you understand the need for advisories and you understand the complex of providing them, and it's certainly um, it's challenge. Interpretation is a challenge. I mean, I remember what five or six years ago, when everybody was worried about piracy and all the Somalian pirates. I don't think there was ever a cruise ship that was successfully attacked. Correct. Right. Correct. It was That's the, it right. Was, it was the freighters and the and the and the, and the cargo That's ships. That's absolutely right. And that was you know Captain Phillips, right? Yes. But that was one incident. It's crazy. That's right. And, you know, but those are powerful images, and people get scared. You know, and how do you fight fear-based decision-making? You know, it's you, you as an industry, you continue to operate your business in a very cautious way and have people understand that that's how we operate, and it's an incredibly safe vacation, and we're cruising all over the world. And, you know, in the event there's anything around the world, the beauty of our industry is we can move the ship. And, you know, when, when things uh, irregularly happen, that's what we do. See, the only time I've seen a pirate attack on a cruise ship is when they announce the noon buffet. <laughs> That's piracy. Toto? Unbelievable. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. joined by the guy responsible for this ship, 
I say this in uh, a great deal of admiration because he's got more coming. Frank Del Rio, the president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings. Did I get that right, Frank? You did. Good morning. <laughs> Bottom line is, you and I have been talking about this ship for a while. Yeah. Um, and every ship that comes out, I mean, this is 168,000 tons. It's 20 stories. Um, and the question that I, that I have to ask you, and it's a question that I'll be asking the captain later, too, is it's big. Can it get bigger? Yes, it can get bigger. Uh, there are bigger ships in the world than, than ours. Um, over time, small ships got bigger, medium-sized ships got bigger, and big ships got bigger. So when I first got into the business back in 1993, I worked for a company that had, that had a fleet of eight 100-passenger cruise ships. And the name of and that ship company was? It was Renaissance Cruises. I remember that. Yeah, I remember the R, the big R. Yeah, the big R. And, uh, and then they leapfrogged, and we ordered eight 684-passenger ships. Which then was considered what, huge. Uh, considered at least medium size. So over time, because of the economies of scale, number one, from a business perspective, and number two, be, be able to house all the fantastic amenities that you now see on, on board cruise ships in order to compete effectively with land-based resorts, you just need space. So as you know, Peter, this vessel at 168,000 ton houses a 1,000-foot-long, double-decker, eight-turn go-kart racetrack where <laughs> 10 cars can race at 35 miles an hour. It's a hoot. Well, we're going to get to that in a second because you're dealing with 4,000-plus passengers, 1,700-plus crew, so nearly 6,000 people on the ship as I'm speaking to you now. Yeah. And yet, I haven't seen a line, which is interesting to me. Uh, the only time I saw a line was the line... To, to, before they opened the doors last night at the theater, right? But that's a big theater. Yeah, it's uh, 700 folks, and everybody wants to see the Jersey Boys. And uh, there'll be a line outside that door as long as Jersey Boys is playing because it's, it's, it, the word is spreading. This is as good as Broadway. I was amazed. Um, in fact, Frankie Valli himself came to the uh, premiere opening of Jersey Boys in New York on board Bliss last Saturday. It was... Uh, it was one of the thrills of my life to be watching Jersey Boys and having Frankie Valli sit next to me. It's uh, incredible. Well, I, it, if truth be told, I actually was at the real opening on Broadway and in the audience that night were Joe Pesci, Frankie Valli, and Bob De Niro. Wow. And they all got up on stage at the end. It was amazing. Fantastic. And, and by the way, for those people who haven't seen the show, it really is a true story. Yeah, it really uh, is. You know, about guys who were about this close to getting mobbed up um, who turned it around. Yeah. Amazing. But when we talk about size, right, I mean, you've got a bowling alley, but you have that on some of your other ships, right? You've got the ice room, right? You've got that on some of your other ships. But this racetrack, I mean, where'd you get the idea for that? I wish I could take credit for it, but it was my grandson's. So about two years ago, um, we were getting ready to uh, go to Monte Carlo to inaugurate the Regent Seven Seas Explorer, which you I were at, Peter. I was you there, were. yeah. yeah. And uh, so my grandkids at the time, the two oldest ones, were 10 years old, and they kept saying, Pops, Pops, are we, we going to have an Xbox in our cabin? <laughs> and, um, you know, no grandpa wants to disappoint their grandkids. But at the same time, you don't want people to have Xbox in the cabin because they won't leave the cabin. That's right. So <laughs> I, I, I said, yeah, I'll get you an Xbox. I'll get you an Xbox. Then it occurred to me, what else would you like to see in a cruise ship? Because, as you know, the Region 7 Seas brand isn't— so your focus group was your grandkids. Exactly. 
And uh, so we were having a sleepover. This was a Saturday night, and their assignment for the next day was, give me a list of things you'd like to see on a cruise ship. And they both independently had a racetrack as their number one item. So they gave equal billing. The next, Monday, the next morning, which was Sunday, uh, Monday morning, I went to visit with Robin Lindsay, who heads up our marine operations, our new build program. And I said, Robin, can we build a racetrack at sea? And he said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, can you build it? And he said, um, probably, it'll cost us. I go, find out more. And, uh, and there she is. So we have two of them. We have one in Shanghai. The Joy, Norwegian Joy is based in Shanghai. Sister ship to this. Sister ship. Um, and then now uh, Bliss has the, the second one, but this one's bigger and better, like you would expect. You, you always try to do things bigger and better. But, yeah, those are the kind of innovations that technology today, size, allows you to put on vessels. So the answer is you can get as big as those entertainment opportunities allow you to do. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, um, so your grandkids notwithstanding, you got the racetrack. Are you going back to them for more ideas? I am. So, devil's advocate question, at a certain point, being on the water is somewhat, somewhat incidental. <laughs> well, you know, the wonderful thing about cruising is yeah. you get everything under the sun. You get this incredible um, uh, destination resort feel. Um, but you get the ship moves from port to port to port. So on a typical seven-day cruise, you'll visit at least three ports, in many cases four or five ports, each one different. Each morning you wake up, you're in a completely new environment, destination, um, and it just adds so much vibrancy and variety. And that's why the millennials are taking so so hard to, to cruising. Because um, they're looking for experiences. They're looking for experiences, and they're looking for value because – they're well-educated, they have good jobs, but they're not yet millionaires. So value is something that millennials value. And uh, as you know, uh, the cruise industry uh, provides fantastic value compared to uh, alternative uh, land-based vacations. That's why it's taken off like a weed all these years. That's why there are over 100 ships um, uh, on the horizon, on the order, uh, books. On the order books, and it's going to keep growing. I don't know about you, but I, I would probably guess and be correct that when you were 17 like when i was 17 we wanted a car yeah they don't want cars today no why you have you have uber or lyft and all those other uh situations um yeah they don't want material things anymore my father once told me you never want to become a prisoner of your possessions right and we all are yeah. right so why don't you i'm telling you just make a storage unit at sea <laughs> people can visit their stuff well um, it's, it's an interactive game. It would be the most expensive storage unit <laughs> in the world, but uh, I, I get your point. But seriously, um, experiences now are high on everyone's list. Even the boomers have pivoted away from accumulating stuff, right. and they want experiences. They recognize that you know the, the clock is ticking. You can't take it with you. Oh, listen, I've got goodwill on speed dial. I'm telling you, they co the truck comes, I give it. It's yeah. how many T-shirts can you own? And you know, I mean. Seriously. And remember, folks, they're all tax deductible. So uh... That's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's shift gears for a second. We've seen, speaking of shifting, with the changing rules from the 
Trump administration about Cuba, knocking out about 82 different hotels that you can't visit or stay in because the claim is that they're owned or controlled by the Cuban military. So you're seeing airline service start to diminish in many cases, or some airlines eliminating service altogether. It's such a rush to fly there now, but they're having trouble filling seats. That's not your problem. You guys are actually adding service. Yes. In, in fact, in, in sort of a uh, unintended consequence type of way, the cruise industry has benefited from the current rules because, um, you know, cruising is always the best way to go visit an island, especially multiple spots, because it's so convenient. Um, now going to Cuba and Havana in particular is even more convenient given those restrictions you just, just mentioned. But the, the, the situation with the airlines, and I'm no airline expert, Peter, but it just seemed to me that um, there was just uh, an overabundance of supply. You know, uh, you never knew how to measure. No one knows how to measure demand precisely, especially to a market that has been closed for 60 years. Yeah. And they probably overshot it a bit. So I think you've seen a lot of capacity coming into the market. Some of it withdrew. But now you're getting some coming back as you fine-tune the the um, the point-to-point -point connection. So you're seeing more flights into Havana, perhaps less flights into the, some secondary cities. Right, but in terms of the cruise industry, you guys can still play by the newly revised rules of the Trump administration Yeah. because you can have the passengers sign affidavits. You are doing people-to-people -people exchange on relatively stricter itineraries. We are, and we are very, uh, very strict, very much in compliance uh, of those regulations. Uh, our customers understand the severity of the situation, uh, but there's so many things to, to see and do uh, in Havana. You don't have to have uh, a mojito on the beach to enjoy Havana. In fact, Havana, as you know, is not really a beach resort. I mean, not there are beaches. It's I an mean, island. The Malacan is there, but nobody's on the, nobody's that's, swimming. That's right. That's that's right. And so um, uh, our, our guests love it. Um, in fact, uh, you may not know that for 2017, our guests voted Havana the most popular destination of all 450 destinations that our three brands uh, visit around the world. And are you getting repeaters? Not yet, because it's only been um, yeah. a, a year. Yeah. Uh, it, if, if we do, it's negligible. Um, but you've added cruises. You've added. We've added another ship yeah. out of uh, Port Canaveral now. So we have uh, two Norwegian cruise line vessels going to Havana weekly, and we have a total of 26 departures that include Havana, Cienfuegos, and so Santiago on Ocean and Regent. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And shore excursion programs that work. That's correct. Yeah. Now, you're Cuban. That's right. You grew up there. Well, I left when I was seven years old. Well, then you did grow up oh, until, until seven. Yeah. You've been back? Ten times now. What's the biggest surprise for you? How happy people are. The Cubans are happy people. Um, how much they love America. It's a shame sometimes that we have governments that get in the way of, um, of just life. Uh, I, I truly believe if it, was, if it was left to the people of America and the people of Cuba, we wouldn't have this protracted 60-year, uh, you know, the Hatfields against the McCoys, because that's what it is now. Although um, travel and tourism is, is the tool that's right. that opens that door. Yeah, and so I'm... Um, I mean, look what just happened in North Korea. I mean, little things that are so significant. And we're not talking about prisoner exchange. We're not talking about the talks with the, between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. No, they just applied to start air service from north to south. You know what that means, Frank. Tourists. Oh, yeah. No, it means infrastructure no. now. Now they're going to go talk to the Spanish, the, the Germans, and the Swiss to build Kempinski hotels or Swiss hotels that's because that's what's going to save his economy. Sure. You know this already. Cubans aren't making a lot of money on sugar. Cubans aren't making a, a substantial amount of money on rum. And the cigar idea is a myth. I mean, if you take a look at the total GDP in Cuba, 
It's always been travel and tourism. Yeah. Not cigars, rum, or sugar. That's right. Right? That's right. That's so right. you guys can open that door more than anything else yeah. to figure to people realizing that if you follow the money, you might get common sense. But, you know, um, it's, um, it's amazing to me that uh, a relatively benign country like Cuba, without nuclear weapons, 90 miles away from home, that um, we still have this kind of uh, coldness towards each other. It's, uh, it's time to stop. 60 years, for God's sakes. 1959. There's been not quite regime change, but um, the, the, the leaders of Cuba have, as you know, uh, have changed recently. Right. Um, For the uh, first time, somebody's running the country whose name doesn't end in Castro. That's right. Um, and so, as you may know, that is the number one condition, pre, pre-existing condition for the embargo to be lifted. The, the Helms... Um, well, the Helms it? Law. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, look, I'm, I'm a big proponent that the embargo's got to end, that we've got to normalize relationships. We, we have normal relationships with China, with Russia, uh, with other countries that uh, p- uh, p- uh, possess a potentially uh, bigger threat to the United States security and safety than, than Cuba does. And um, I'd, I'd love to see it in my lifetime um, go back to normal relations. Well, I think you will because one of the other little small steps that's been taken happened about a year and a half ago is that the Treasury Department, our Treasury Department, allowed U.S. banks to put merchant terminals there. People can use their credit cards. Hasn't happened yet. Um, but they took the blocks off. Yes, but uh, there a lot of restrictions. Have you and I have spoken to lots of bankers. Yeah. Uh, the, all the business that we do in, in, in Cuba has got to go through one bank. Um, when you visit Havana, bring plenty of cash. Because Euros. They'll need it. Euros. Euros, too. Better exchange rate, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they put a premium on dollars. Sure, Yeah. sure. But get there before all the other car collectors buy the cars and take them out. You know, um, that's a bit of a myth, too. Yeah. You see a lot of 53 Chevys and 57 Chevys, but they're just a shell. The, the engines are— Oh, they've are, been reworked yeah. 85 different times. Yeah. So there's not much left there to work with. Maybe, maybe just the shell, yeah. Although I did see a DeSoto. I saw a DeSoto. I saw a Chrysler Imperial. I saw cars that are no longer made for, in this country, you sure. know. So it's, it's still pretty cool. Yeah. And, of course, one of the big tourist attractions is to sit in the convertible of a 55 Chevy. Down the Malecon. And go down the Malecon. Yeah. It's selfie time. Yeah. So let's go beyond Cuba for a second. There are over 1,100 ports of call that cruise lines are, are going to now. And some of them are quite remarkable that you would never expect. I mean, I transited the Suez Canal. Um, Bangladesh is now a port. What's the most surprising port that NCL goes to? Or Regent, or Oceana. You know, I, I, I think it's Havana. Um, our, our customers love it. it. It's 90 miles away, but our customers feel it's so exotic, it's so different. They're amazed by what you see there, the, the beauty of Havana. Um, and, and what it, you're doing that's smart is you're doing overnights. Yeah. Because people don't want to come. They want to get back at 3 in well, the morning. Well, you know, Havana nightlife is legendary. Oh, my God. Tropicana is still Tropicana. Although Tropicana, come on, you'd admit this, it's a little too touristy. Come on. People go there once and go, okay, I've done it. Or the Floridita. Yeah. Right? The Hemingway Bar. But, I got it. But that's, that's part, of the, uh, part of the charm. You have to see it. You have to see it once. You have to see it once. Or go down to the, listen, my parents honeymooned at the Hotel National. Wow. And here's the crazy story. When my mom was still alive back in 2002, I was going down there to do a piece for NBC on the anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
right? 40th anniversary. And um, so I said to my mom, who, by the way, was a hoarder, I said, didn't you and dad honeymoon at the Hotel National? She says, hold on a second. She opens up a drawer. She had the bill. She had the wow. room number. <laughs> so I wrote it down. I went down there. I went to the hotel. I asked them to open that room. I went into the room. You know what was in the room? The world's oldest model color TV, an old telephone. That was it. Nothing else had changed since, since the honeymoon. You know what's the funny? The honeymoon was 1947. You know what's funny? Um, when I ask our guests, what, why, why your interest in, in visiting Havana? Why do you want to go to Havana? The typical answer I get is, oh, I want to see it before the Americans go and ruin it. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. What's amazing to me is, is the question that I always ask, and I ask it of all the cruise line CEOs, is can everything get even bigger? And the answer is... Yes. Well, the answer is yes. This is one of the biggest cruise ships in the world, but it's not the biggest. And I get this question uh, from passengers often. Yeah. Are, are, the, are the ships going to get any bigger? And I said, well, I think the industry has taken a bit of a pause the last 10 years or so since that ship first came out. But I think the industry is moving, is ready for even bigger ships. If you look another 10 years ahead, I think we're going to have even bigger cruise ships. When you started in the shipping business, and we're going to talk about that, you know, ships were transportation. You went from A to B to C. Today, the ships that we're on, including this one, is the destination. I mean, it could easily be called that. Very much so. I mean, the amenities and the variety of entertainment and uh, dining and whatnot is so huge on the ship, uh, comparing uh, to, to the first passengers that started out in cruising. This is a completely different animal. Well, let's even go beyond that, or before that, to where you started on a small overseas freighter back, what, 44 years ago? 44 years ago, yeah. So uh, I, um, I didn't really have any dream of becoming a sailor or no, no family background. No, your dream was to survive the freighter. <laughs> well, well, before I got on the freighter, that was just meant as a... Um, uh, as a um, I was on, um, on high school then, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took a sabbatical, and I just wanted a bit of an adventure. So that's why I got on this and freighter. And then there was the Merchant Marine Academy in Sweden back in 79. That's later on, yeah. So uh, this, uh, this experience on the freighter was, uh, was quite overwhelming, and I, I really fell in love with the ocean. So that's uh, why I decided then to, to make it a career, and I went into the Motion Marine Academy. Well, the thing that impressed you the most was the three-masted tall ship. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was something that I stumbled over as well. Uh, so that was my first, uh, first command after I finished uh, the Motion Marine Academy. And I would say as a captain myself, I live on a boat. Okay. But I would tell you as a captain myself, if you can master the three-masted tall ship, you can operate anything. Yeah, I, I had some sailing background before, but not on big ships like that. And that uh, that ship sa carried 16 sails, and you had 144 lines to control it. So that, that was. Uh, but I'm saying, I mean, you, you did it the old-fashioned way. You manually did everything. Yeah, I've right? um, I've tried a little of everything when it comes I mean, to shipping. One of your jobs right now, I'm sure of it, is to explain to people when they come up on the bridge, there's no wheel. Well, there is a small wheel. I know wheel. there's a we, small we, we, wheel. Yeah, but, but, but... Not the wheel that people are looking for. No, 
No, the, the, uh, when the ship is at sea, the ship is, um, uh, is uh, maneuvered by track pilot. Uh, it's, uh, it's a sophisticated version of an autopilot, if you yeah. want. Yeah, but there's all sorts of instruments connected into that integral navigation systems. But when you, when you dock the ship, it's still done manually, though. But right. um, uh, it's used with uh, joysticks uh, that controls our acipods and bow thrusters and so on. Let's talk about the acipods, because when that first came out, it was a problem. They weren't working. They, they really had a problem with them. I remember a number of Royal Caribbean and celebrity ships that just broke down. Great concept, but they had to figure it out. That's correct. They, yeah. There were some design flaws on the early versions of the acipods, uh, mainly with the bearings. Uh, they didn't hold out as, uh, as good as they were designed to, but uh, they've since fixed that. So. And to, to, to make it as a further explanation, we're talking about a ship here that doesn't have a traditional rudder. You're actually, your propulsion is movable. Yeah, the, the the propulsion and the and the thruster, if you want, is the is the same as integrated. So these acipods, uh, we have an electric motor that sits in a pod that, that turns 360 degrees, and you have a propeller at the end of that pod. Amazing. We're talking to Captain Carl Stefan. As a captain, having come all the way up to this level of ship, what's the biggest surprise for you about this ship? Uh, the biggest surprise, uh, I don't know if there's really much surprise. Of course, b being a ship bigger, quite much bigger than the, what I've been navigating before, it is heavier and it is much more susceptible to wind. So that is... Yeah, people uh, don't realize it doesn't matter how big the ship is, wind is still wind. The ship carries a wind surface area of more than three acres. Oh, jeez. So it's, it's you, Spinnaker, if you want to talk it in sailing terms. we're back to sails again. Yeah. So you got some resistance up there. You certainly do. So the, the ship is very susceptible to winds, and if you have strong winds from the side, the, the ship has a tendency to drift down. So that is, that is definitely a challenge, especially going forward. We're going to be in Alaska during the summertime and small ports, some really narrow passages up there. So that's something to be focused but on. But you can operate without a tugboat. I'm sorry? But you can operate without tugs. You don't need we, tugs. Yes, uh, normally we do that. But, uh, again, that in strong winds, that uh, may be, uh, we may have to use tugboats uh, to maneuver in some of the ports up there. But you, know, you talk about where you're going with this ship, because right now we're in Florida. You're going to go through the Panama Canal? That's correct. Which one? The new one or the old one? <laughs> it's definitely going to be the new one. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> uh, still, still in that, we are going to be the biggest uh, cruise ship ever passed through the Panama Canal. And, and for people who have never done it, the actual margin on the space in those locks is what six inches. Well, in the the old locks, uh, yeah. you had like a foot on either side of the ship. It was bizarre. Yeah, yeah. the new locks now are quite much bigger. Uh, they have taken container ships through there that are bigger than my ship, but uh, but for a cruise ship, this is the biggest one to go through. And how long will it take you to do the transit? Uh, it six will take hours? about twelve hours. Twelve hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, including uh, the locks because it takes some time to. Uh, it's like a three steps. You go up like uh, like a staircase. It's three steps up. Plus, you got to wait your turn. You have to wait and turn, and you have to do your clearance, and uh, so it's, uh, it's a process. Last year, we transited uh, the Suez, and that was amazing. Yeah, amazing. I did that only two years ago. It was with, on another Norwegian ship we were doing through the Suez And you Canada. see such history going right by you. Yeah. Right? This is where that battle was fought. This is where they lost. This is where they won. There you go. I know. It's, it's amazing. But you're winning the battle on this one because I'm sure that with all the technology on board, despite the narrow passages on the Suez or on the, on the Panama Canal, or going up to Alaska, it's a maneuverable ship. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio 
with no particular place to go. My next guest, every time we're on a ship, he becomes a regular on the ship. We can't get rid of him. He's the publisher of Porthole Cruise Magazine, Bill Panoff. How are you, sir? Peter, it seems like yesterday we were together. It was well, yesterday we, we were together. Well, we were doing it. We were actually doing a radio show on board another new ship. That's right. Which is the MSCC side. Exactly. A different sort of a design and, and, and innovative approach to, to cruise ship interior work, at least, and not to mention exterior work. Yeah. Now we're on the latest incarnation of the breakaway class ships of Norwegian called the Bliss. That's right. What do you think? It's blissful. I mean, oh uh, stop. Yeah, no, no, it's very, very blissful. It's uh, it's remarkable. I um, I've toured the ship several times and uh, looked at all the areas, and one area in particular that comes out is the entertainment, which was uh, well. I was talking about that earlier in the show because the theater. I went to see uh, Jersey Boys. Yeah, and I was look. Ships in the past had theaters as an afterthought. They weren't really designed for the technology of the performance or the or the physical needs of a, of a stage and a set. Uh, low ceilings, not a lot of ability to move, and then if you had rough seas, <laughs> the juggler had a problem. But now they're designing ships around the theaters. Exactly. And they've done that here. It's a, it's a two- or three-story theater, when you think about it, with, with a stage that can go up, you know, 30, 40 feet. Yeah. Acoustically, the sound was just phenomenal, and the sight lines were even better. And the talent was superb. I mean, I felt like I was on Broadway watching Jersey Boys. It was that yeah, You know, good. this is the difference, because 10 years ago, uh, and by the way, there are some cruise lines that are still doing this, and it's pretty tired. They're doing Broadway reviews. Right. You know, and, you know, like, I don't want to hear the, you know, the, the, the greatest hits from Camelot. Again, you know, stop. Um, And if I hear one more rendition of New York, New York, I think I'm going to throw up. (laughs) But be that as it may, they've actually brought the real Broadway shows on stage in their entire length. This isn't a 40-minute review show. This is, what? This is like 90 minutes. It was 90 minutes, exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, tonight, there's another one called Havana, which I'm excited to see. And it's a full-scale production and uh, something that uh, Norwegian actually created themselves. Which is basically uh, incubated here. Right, exactly. But what was interesting about that show last night is that they actually stayed with the original book of the show. They didn't vary. They did. No, they didn't waver at all. It was just, yeah. uh, it was an hour and a half, and it was just nonstop, and it caught me from the beginning to the end. You know, it was, it, uh, traditionally, most cruise ship audiences, whether they're first seating or second seating or whenever they're seating, you know, they bolt out of that show because they want to go to the bar, they want to go to the scene. They yeah. stayed. They stayed to the end, and it was standing ovation. Several, they, actually. There were two or three of them, actually. I know. Yeah. All right, so that was one of the things that impressed you. One of the things that impressed me is you're dealing with a ship here of over 4,000 passengers, nearly 1,800 crews. So you're right. dealing with nearly 6,000 people. I haven't seen a lot of lines. I haven't seen any lines, and I haven't seen a lot of congestion in terms of having a lot of people in one area. The flow seems to be uh, uh, very, very well, well thought out the way they, uh, they plan the ship. I mean, at this point in the sort of like in the, in the evolution of cruises, you'd want to think, right, that the cruise lines have figured out flow of passengers right uh because you've got to move a lot of people in a short amount of time and and that's one of my fears that they can't do it yeah now on this ship you don't feel it it's just uh, there's so many different avenues and and places to visit at the same time the only place that i saw a lot of people was on the pool but the weather was fantastic and everyone's laying in the sun i mean actually the only place i saw a lot of people was earlier today, I think it was Seafood Buffet Lobster time. There you go. I and I'm telling you, you could get hurt up there. <laughs> you could get hurt. I, I missed mean, that, People were not going to be denied, and they weren't, like, loading up on, like, one little lobster tail. We're no. talking, they're, taking, they're, they're basically devouring the Chesapeake Bay in there. No. I mean, unbelievable. They had uh, Alaska craws, and they also had the lobster tail, and they also had sh- jumbo shrimp. So they, there that's was a queue o- there. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is they, they really have... Look, most buffets on most ships, uh, let's call it what it is. It's, you know, bad macaroni and cheese and jello. Um, which, by the way, I love macaroni and cheese and jello. <laughs> I live for it. 
But when you see the opportunities and the offerings that they had here, it was, it was rather remarkable in terms of what was available. Yeah, no, it was, absolutely. Right. Is there anything about the ship that you have a question about? Not really. I mean, the, the one area that obviously that I felt the most at home on is the Haven, and that's an area obviously that... Uh, well, you're an elitist. Yeah, yeah. You have to pay a little bit extra to go up there, but once you're up there, it is like heaven. I mean, it's a little bit different than the Haven on the other ships of, of, of Norwegian class that I've been right. on. Uh, there's a little more uh, space. Uh, there's, a, there's a lounge in the front of the ship. It's a panoramic view of the ocean and the most comfortable chairs at sea. I just fell asleep reading a book. It was no, that, I, I went up there earlier today, and I have no idea why they let me in, but I did. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, the, the, the ceilings and the, that slidable roof, yeah. I mean, they thought of everything there. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the cool thing about the pricing, by the way, because I'm really angry at the travel industry in general for the, for the misuse of the asterisk. Um, you know, you'll see something advertised as an all-inclusive resort, and it's followed by the asterisk. And then if you look, you find out all the things that are not included. Right. What they've done on the pricing of this particular class on the ship is you, everything's thrown in. Right. I right. mean, you get, free you get free internet, you get, I mean, your drinks are free. I mean, everything is, like, bundled in. Yeah, and a private restaurant up there, which is just uh, phenomenal. I mean, it's a, it's a ship within a ship concept. Uh, you could be segregated, but at the same time, you can go down and, and join all the other activities. So uh, admit it, you just don't want to be with a hoi polloi. <laughs> come on, admit it. No, 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 no. Occasionally, I do mingle with others, yeah. Occasionally, yeah. You, mingle, Occasionally but, I you look down, down yeah, upon no, them. No, yes, no. I, I understand. <laughs> uh, where do you see the industry going now? Because every shipyard is full. Of, uh, with full with full orders, they're they're cranking out ships at record pace, yeah. right? They're at 100 percent capacity. Yeah. Royal Caribbean now has the biggest ship, right? The, the one that just started sailing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're talking nearly 8,000 people on that. Yeah. yeah. That's out of control. Yeah. Excluding the crew, there's another 2,000 crew as well. It's just uh, it's so. I mean, crazy. like, talk about flow. Yeah. I mean, have we gotten to the point where the cruise ship itself is not really taking you from port A to point B, but the cruise ship has become the destination itself? I think so. I think that's what's evolving uh, by default because many of the ports are so congested now with more and more influx of, of cruise traffic, they can't accommodate the influx. So the ship itself, for many, is becoming the destination. I believe that's true. Are you also seeing the itineraries change, not in terms of the destinations, but the time these ships are spending at those destinations? I see uh, some of them are, are cutting down the duration in port. Some of them are extending the day duration in port. Some of the upscale cruise lines are doing overnights in some of the European ports as well, depending on uh, what the, uh, the availability is. But uh, time in port is a, is a precious commodity. And uh, I think the cruise lines uh, are spending as much time as they possibly can, given the traffic. Well, that brings up the point of where the ship's going to be going. Right yeah. now, we're sailing off the coast of Florida, but... In June, which is where we are right now, yeah. this ship will be repositioned going through the Panama Canal yeah. to do an Alaskan summer. It will be. And the ports up there are jammed. They are. I they mean, are. it's not unusual to get to Seward and see seven ships in the harbor. Right. It's like there are more people on the ships than actually live in Seward. That's right. The population on board exceeds the population in right. the port. And yeah. now you have yeah. some infrastructure concerns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, have you at the magazine dealt with the issue of overtourism? We, we discuss it all the time, and we, uh, you know, we've written articles about it, and the cruise lines, I think, are very conscious of it, but uh, they're running out of places to put the ships. Some of them are buying private islands, some of them are building islands, some of them are doing this and that. But at the end of the day, as the ships get larger and larger, the ship will be the destination, I believe, and it will just sail around and maybe hit maybe one or two ports, but it will remain at sea. So it's like the old joke about the couple, you know, where'd you go on your vacation? And we don't know. Oh, yeah. where'd you go? Oh, Aruba. Oh, where's that? We flew. Yeah, exactly. Well... 
Now you can apply that to the cruise industry. Where did you sail to? I don't know. We were on yeah. a ship. Yeah, other, other couple have said to you, where did you go on your vacation? He said, I went around the world. He said, the next year I'm going to go somewhere different. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up the good news for people who want to cruise. Over 1,100 ports of call around the world now. Yeah, that's, that's a true. radical differentiation from 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What's the craziest port of call that you've, you've covered? The craziest port of call that I've ever been to? Or, uh, or that the magazine's covered? We've been to a place called Samana. I don't know if that's off the Dominican Republic. It's a little island unto itself, and it's just a very remote place. And the, many of the cruise lines that actually dock in the Dominican Republic offer shore excursions there. Very remote, very unique, very uh, secluded. That, for me, was amazing. I mean, it wasn't that unique, but it was just so secluded and just uh, remote and very authentic. And not 8,000 people going No, there. not at all. Very few, actually. That's <laughs> the way we like it. Yeah, exactly. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest is the cruise director on this ship, which basically means he's an air traffic controller because with 20 stories high and so many different things going on simultaneously, I'm amazed that there are not more announcements made every five seconds because there's just so much going on. Silas Cook, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, you've been on some of the smaller ships, Correct. right, in, in Hawaii uh, back in 2006, 2007? Yeah, and that's how I started, actually, my career in the industry was the pride of Aloha. And I started out there um, being a U.S. citizen. That was a, a great in and a connection to actually— Because they needed you. They needed under me. under the employment laws— of the state of Hawaii. They do. Most of the actual crew members yeah. are from the states and, and are required to be in order to work out there because it's a U.S. flagged cruise ship, so a completely different market. And what way. people don't realize is if you wanted to take a list of how many U.S. flagged cruise ships there are, you can do it on the fingers of one hand. There's your ship at that time. You had three then, but now you have one there. Correct. And a couple of Mississippi Queens, a couple of Mississippi River boats, maybe on the Rogue River, not the Rogue River, the Columbia River, and we're done. Yeah. That's well, it. You know more than I do, but sounds yeah, good. It's true. And you say the Rogue River. Well, I know about That's the Rogue River. From. That's where you're from. <laughs> you're a 503 guy? A 503. Not up north. Not up north. Oh, no. I'm a 541 Southern Oregon boy. Yeah. Oh, there's an area code I don't <laughs> use very often. Uh, a lot of Birkenstocks and beards, yeah. Oh, you see, you were doing so well till you mentioned Birkenstocks. <laughs> oh, no. oh, my God. And, and they talk slower. Than I do, yes. They, and they talk, they, they talk more quieter. They're like, I'm in Oregon. Hi. Please leave. <laughs> Is that how they say it? Oh, yeah. They don't want to California. No, no. They don't want to Californicate Oregon. Remember that exactly. sign? Well, those days are gone. I, mm, but how'd you get on the ships? It was through a connection through a friend, actually. I used to be in a performing arts group um, from 1999 to 2002. And on one of my tours, of course, you know, you make some new friends. And um, it was about 2005. I was living in New York City at the time and uh, received a call from my friend. And he started working on the Pride of America when it was new. And uh, he had mentioned that uh, and talked to me saying that he'd think it'd be a great fit for me to give a shot and a try. And so 
about a year later, I figured I'd give it a roll and think, why not? Let's work in Hawaii. And uh, so I interviewed not once, but twice. And then I got the gig. <laughs> and some months later, I ended up out in Hawaii as a crew staff host in 2007. And the rest is history, as they say. But this is a bigger ship. This much, is huge. Much larger, yes. I mean, you need literally, you know, you have to like basically geo <laughs> position yourself here. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's just so. I, I, I estimate, and you've been on the ship longer than I have, I would estimate it would take me three days to figure out everything that's on the ship, just to figure it out, not to do it. I would, yeah, I would say you're right. I mean, a lot of time, I mean, we have a seven day cruise, generally speaking, out of Alaska, and I would say by day. Halfway through the cruise, three or four is when, when our guests are really starting to feel acclimated and they're starting to really find everything because the concept in our large ships is small, intimate venues, but they're located all throughout the ship. Right. You get to hide. You can hide. Oh, man. <laughs> you can hide. Right? I can't hide, but no. yeah, sure. If they want a quiet spot or just depending on deck six, seven, and eight Ocean Place, that's where all the action on the internals happens. Okay. Let's talk stereotypes here. Okay. All right? The stupidest question you're asked... It used to be, what time is the midnight buffet? But what's another stupid question? Oh, boy, put me on the spot with this one. Uh, Do the waiters sleep on board? That kind of stuff. Yeah, a question for me is, oh, okay, I guess for me is, uh, is stupidest question. Oh, man. I don't know if there's a lot of stupid questions so much as, uh, oh, I'm going to have to think about that one. Okay, no yeah, problem. sorry about that. I'll come up but with something. But let's talk about the things that used to be big on cruise ships that maybe not anymore. They're not playing bingo anymore, are they? No bingo? Yeah, you better no. play bingo. Seriously? There's a demand for the bingo. Yeah, we offer bingo. Really? You bet. It's a chance for people to make money. It's gambling in a sense. <laughs> bingo is alive. Wow. Okay. <laughs> There's one I didn't realize. Shuffleboard? Not on the ship. There we go. I found one. Not on the ship. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It is still on several different ships. It's all yeah. about the right location and spacing. But yes. Exactly. And then... Um, Midnight buffet, not really, right? We'll have a, yeah, there's, there's going to be late night snacks. So we do have that option available for those guests that want but to. The but thing, the thing you really got going for yourself is the entertainment. I saw Jersey Boys last night. I was forgetting the performance, which is excellent. I was impressed with the theater, mm -hmm. with, the, with the technical aspects of what you can do yes. on a stage like that. Yeah, there's a lot of automation. There's a lot of moving uh, elements at the ground level as, of course, coming from the top as well on the floor, right. left and right, up and down. But from a technical point of view, you can do a lot with that stage. Absolutely. That's great. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest has a pretty cool job, and he has a lot of explaining to do. Because on the top of the ship, you've been hearing me talk about it throughout the show, there's a racetrack with cars. Now, I grew up with bumper cars at mm -hmm. amusement parks, and I still, every chance I can find one at the last remaining parks that have them, I can't wait to slam into somebody else. But this is a different kind of a racetrack, and joining me now, the director of guest services, but... One of the leads in the implementation of this racetrack, Simon Murray. How are you, sir? Hi, I'm good. Good morning. How are you? All right. Racetrack? Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, but I mean, you had to deal with so many different issues here, right? We're talking about physics. Sure. We're talking about electrical. Mm-hmm. We're talking about pitch, roll. Yep. All the things, because you're on a moving object, 168,000 ton moving object at sea, and you're doing a racetrack at the highest part of the ship. 
And that's the coolness, right? All those challenges to make it work. And now we have this thousand foot long racetrack, biggest racetrack at sea, and it's truly a marquee piece of the ship. It's See, I, I love how you say the biggest racetrack. I wasn't even where there was a racetrack at sea. Yeah, we have one more. It's a bit smaller. This is, you know, it's a, it's a big improvement in what we've done, but it's beautiful. <laughs> You know, you know you're getting out of control in the cruise industry when somebody's got we got a new improved racetrack. Most people are just trying to figure out where the buffet is. That's true, which is kind of close to the racetrack, so you can eat first and come and drive. <laughs> I would suggest doing it the in reverse. That could drive be a first, good idea. then eat. Okay, we'll, we'll look you with at me that. on that. Yeah, true. Because <laughs> you don't want to mess up the cars. No, no. How many how many G forces are you doing up there? So it's more the, the G force really isn't the big thing. It's more about the speed of what you're doing. So the, plus you're very low to the ground. Very low to the ground. So, the so cars, basically, your ass is dragging. Yeah, you're like a couple of inches away from having a hole in your pants. That's very very true. <laughs> uh, but the carts that are now designed, there's a branding message. Hole in your pants? No, just a few inches away. All right, yeah, come on. <laughs> we'll take that to Megan the team. The way it really works is uh, it's about controlling the speed. So we want it to be thrilling enough for the guests that they really have a great time. But the safety is the number one concern of the track to make well, sure that people are safe, the cars are safe, and everyone around them is safe. Well, in the design of this track, I'm assuming you had to test the limits. Absolutely. To figure out what you could do or what you couldn't do. Yep. Lose any cars? No, and don't intend to. Lose any passengers? Zero, and don't intend to. But, you know, the lower you are to the ground... The speed becomes relative to the to the sensation. Exactly. So you're going what thirty miles an hour? Yeah, about thirty, which is good. And what what we did, which is really cool, was we actually built a, a speaker into the car as well. So being electric, they're very environmentally friendly. There's no pollution, but electric, there's no noise of a car. So this speaker that's built in actually gives the driver a feeling of they're really got a big thumping fast car, and it actually is quite quick. So it's like when I was a kid, I put I put plague cards in the spokes of my wheels. In exactly my bike. for the tick. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. <laughs> same thing. So by those enhancements to the carts that we did, it really gives a, a much more rich feeling that you're really in something very fast. It's doing a, a great speed around the track. And how long does it take you to do the circuit? So most people, it's about 35 seconds is the average lap. The track record's about 27 flat at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty quick. But obviously, you know, it's different skill sets and levels of drivers. And we have different speeds we offer the guests too because we have some people that are, you know, our track and, in fact, the whole shit's very family-friendly driven. So, you know, I have a little seven-year-old daughter. She's not going to drive at a fast speed with me. So we have different increments of speed based Has upon... Has she been in the car? She has, and she is thrilled with it. We have a couple of double cars, so we can actually take someone um, who, is, who is little, who wants to race with a parent as well. So we have those two, and she loved it. Any handicapped accessible cars? Four of those as well, the same thing. So it's fully ADA accessible, a track as well. We can get people in and out, which is great. Now, this is not, to be clear, a car that's on a, like a Disney ride. This is not a car that's being pulled anywhere. Oh, no. You're operating the car. Yeah, there's no pulling there's no rails there's no guiding system it's literally a vehicle so you're in control of what it does which is also what's really thrilling about it so you know the track itself gives you parameters of where you can and can't go but it's literally you want to go left or right you want to overtake someone because on the wheels there's a turbo boost button so on those big turns you can <laughs> whip around someone it's really it's fantastic do you hit the wall absolutely but the wall's designed in such a way that it absorbs all the shock. So if you hit a wall, you don't hit and stop. You'll kiss It's like the video the game. It kind of is, right? Yeah. And then it's also for safety too. So that way people aren't getting jars and shocks in their bones. Um, you just kiss off the wall and keep driving. So you don't have an orthopedic surgeon standing by? No, and we don't need one either. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Simon Murray, the director of guest services, and one of the leads in this crazy race car deal. 
How many cars do you have? We've got 26 cars on board. And the reason we have so many is if you look at the pit lanes, uh, we have two pits of 10 cars. So we would normally race 10 people at a time, but being electric, we've got to charge them up. So we basically have 10 that run and then the next 10 guests come on board, jump in the other 10. And that way, because the demand for this thing has been beyond crazy, the People want to get in this all the time. So by having two sets of cars, we're constantly having the track in operation and we can charge the cars as well. Stupid question. You've got garage and mechanics? Absolutely. We have two dedicated people. One is for preventative maintenance, so that way we can keep the cars running all the time. And the second one is more for the electrical side too because, you know, being in that sort of sea air, the corrosion, the environment, it's pretty brutal up there. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.